Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for September 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we talk about the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with vitamin D in critical care medicine. The improvements in mortality associated with the spectrum of diseases of sepsis to multi-organ dysfunction is now only modest with large trials finding it difficult to make improvements. And vitamin D is an area where there's been renewed interest. So cells of the innate and active immune system have been shown to express vitamin D receptor with vitamin D acting as an inhibitor of adaptive immunity and a potent stimulator of innate immunity. That is, vitamin D may be integral to the host response to infection. In humans, 25-hydroxy-D is the most abundant vitamin D metabolite and is used as a measure of total vitamin D status. In critical illness, the majority of patients have been shown to be vitamin D deficient and an association between vitamin D status and mortality exists, although the causal nature of this relationship has not been established. This prospective RCT set out to assess the effect of high-dose cholecalciferol 200,000 units versus 400,000 units versus placebo in 30 adult patients with new onset severe sepsis or septic shock. And that was defined as severe sepsis or septic shock within 24 hours. They report at baseline the groups were well matched. The primary outcome, which was changes in vitamin D status and cathelicidin, which is a vitamin D dependent exogenous antimicrobial peptide. So for Placebo, 200,000 units, and 400,000 units. The change was an increase in 25-hydroxy-D relevant to baseline at day five of 3%, 49%, and 69%, and an increase in cathelicidin of 17%, 4%, and 30%. The secondary outcomes, ICU length of stay was... 12 days for placebo, 4 days for 200,000 and 3 days for 400,000. So because of the numbers that wasn't significant. Hospital length of stay was 21, 13 and 14 days. 30 day mortality was 30%, 20%, 20% and 30 day readmission was 20%, 0%, 0%. So in summary, Giving cholecalciferol to septic patients increased their vitamin D level and increased their cathelicidin levels, a surrogate antimicrobial marker. There were secondary outcomes relating to readmission and length of stay that were encouraging, but it was a small study and so it wasn't significant. But there probably is enough there to generate interest in a larger study, providing more in-depth information about the relationship between vitamin D immunomodulation, cytokine expression, and outcomes. Okay, moving on to the New England Journal of Medicine, we have the Three Sites Study Group, who published Intravascular Complications of Central Venous Catheterization by Insertion Site. So this is a French prospective multi-center trial that randomly assigned 3,471 non-tunneled CVC catheters in 3,027 adult critically ill patients to insertion in one of three sites, subclavian, 
jugular or femoral. The goal was to ascertain the complication rate. The treating clinician assessed the suitability of sites and if all three sites were considered suitable, patients were randomised one to one to one. If one wasn't suitable, they were randomised one to one and if only one site was suitable, the insertion was not included in the study. All insertions were performed by clinicians that had performed at least 50 insertions, maximal sterile barrier precautions were used and none of the study catheters were antiseptic or antibiotic impregnated. Insertion was performed using Seldinger technique with anatomical ultrasound guidance. Catheters were assessed daily and removed when not needed and within two days compression ultrasonography was performed to assess thrombosis. So what did they find? The distribution of catheters were jugular 1280, femoral about 1200, subclavian about 1000. The median catheter dwell time was five days. The primary outcome, incidence of major catheter related complications, or CLABSI will say, and symptomatic DVT, from the time of catheter insertion to 48 hours after catheter removal was eight, 20 and 22 primary outcome events in the subclavian jugular and femoral groups respectively and that's 1.5, 3.6 and 4.6 per thousand catheter days. So in pairwise comparison the risk was significantly higher in the femoral group than in the subclavian group, hazards ratio of 3.5, higher in the jugular group than the subclavian group, hazard ratio of 2.1 and similar in the femoral and jugular groups. In terms of secondary safety outcomes, major mechanical complications occurred in 18 of the subclavian, 12 of the jugular, 6 of the femoral, with a pneumothorax requiring chest tube insertion in 1.5% of the subclavians and 0.5% of the jugular vein catheters. So overall, the study probably confirms what we knew, that is, the lowest risk of CLABSI and symptomatic thrombosis occurs in subclavian vein insertion site and there is a higher, although rarely, relatively small risk of pneumothorax with subclavian. Okay, moving on to JAMA um, and we have association of intensive care unit admission with mortality among older patients with pneumonia. So has the growth in US ICU beds led to an oversupply or to better care? This large retrospective Medicare database linkage study looked at over 1 million over 65-year-old patients admitted to 3,000 US hospitals with pneumonia, and that was on ICD-9 coding, and compared the 330,000 admitted to ICU to those admitted to the ward, and they looked at 30-day all-cause mortality. So the unadjusted comparison showed the difference at baseline was the ICU patients were more likely to have respiratory failure, sepsis and shock as their primary diagnosis, require ventilation, CPR and have more organ failures. No surprises there. Patients admitted to ICU had a 30-day mortality of 35.9% compared to ward of 11.7%. Again, this is just the unadjusted um, comparison. They then adjusted for covariates to try and account for the bias regarding patients selected for admission to ICU, including demographics, comorbid illness, severity of illness, type of pneumonia, year of admission, income, hospital type, size, case volume, region, etc. 
they performed an instrumental variable analysis. And the idea being the instrument approximates random assignment of patients to a treatment group analogous to an RCT, but not quite. In this case, they used the differential distance instrument, that is, the extra distance from the closest hospital a patient would have to travel from home to get to a high ICU admission hospital, and that is defined as the top two quintiles of ICU admission hospitals, that is, the hospitals that had a greater than 32% admission rate were considered high ICU admission hospitals. So the difference between this and standard multivariable regression analysis is that standard multivariable analysis looks at the adjusted treatment effect for the average patient, while the instrumental variable analysis looks at the adjusted treatment effect for the marginal patient, that is, those that are admitted to ICU solely because they live near a high ICU admission hospital. So that's really interesting. What did they find in the adjusted analysis? The average ICU patients had higher mortality than the average ward patient, 21.5% versus 17.8%. Of the patients that lived less than the median differential distance from a high ICU admission hospital, 36.3% were admitted to ICU compared with 22.8% of those who lived greater than the median differential distance. Therefore, ICU admission appeared to depend only on distance for 13% of patients. The instrumental analysis, which estimates the effect in this subset of marginal patients, revealed the ICU versus ward admission was associated with a lower 30-day mortality, 14.8%, versus 20.5%, p-value 0.02. And the sensitivity analysis demonstrated that this effect was consistent across urban, rural, race, organ failure, number of beds, etc. categories. So overall, the authors are suggesting that in a cohort of patients in whom ICU admission appeared discretionary based on the distance they lived from a low versus a high admitting to ICU hospital, there was a 5.7% absolutely survival advantage associated with ICU admission. Also, there were no significant differences in Medicare spending or hospital costs. Now clearly this is limited by the use of administrative coding data, the unmeasurable effect of confounders that they're not aware of, the effect of timing of hospitalization, reasons for high versus low ICU admissions, and the leap of intellectual faith we must take regarding instrumental analysis. It does, however, open the door for a fascinating prospective RCT design. Let's move to kids. In The Lancet, we've got the oxygen saturation targets in infants with bronchiolitis, the BIDS study. So is a target oxygen saturation of 90% adequate for children with bronchiolitis, the most common acute lower respiratory tract infection in infants and the cause of a major proportion of ICU admissions. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the WHO recommend 90% as adequate. The UK sign guideline recommended 94% and there is a lack of evidence and consensus and the implications on the developed world and the third world where supplemental oxygen is a scarce resource are important. 
So this parallel group, randomised controlled equivalence trial conducted at eight paediatric hospitals in the UK during two six-month winter bronchiolitis seasons, randomised infants aged six weeks to 12 months, excluding those who are less than 37 weeks gestation and uh, with uh, other comorbidities, who presented to the ED with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis to target SATs of 90% or 94%. Now they achieved this by using manufactured modified pulse oximeters that skewed the internal algorithm to display measured values of 90% as 94% with smoothed displays of above and below this point. Staff were then instructed to give supplemental oxygen for displayed sats of less than 94% because that's what they saw. They enrolled 615 infants, median age of 21.3 weeks, baseline respiratory rate 49 to 50, heart rate of 160 with a four-day length of illness, median sats of 95% with 40% recording sats less than 94% on arrival. The primary outcome for equivalence was resolution of cough determined by contacting parents at 7, 14, 28 days and 6 months. So median time to cough resolution was 15 days in both groups. That is, there was equivalence for the primary outcome with no difference in subgroup analysis. Other outcomes were time to feed adequately with a target of greater than 75% as being adequate and it was 2.7 hours quicker in the 90% group with a hazard ratio of 1.22. Parental perception of back to normal was one day sooner with a 90% group, hazard ratio of 1.2. SATs at 28 days, there was no difference. Time to fit for discharge, 10 hours sooner in the 90% group, hazard ratio of 1.46. And supplemental oxygen was given in 73% of the 94% SAT group and 56% of the 90% group. So overall, there was no difference in adverse events. ICU and HDU admissions occurred in 8 in the 94% group versus 13 in the 90% group, and there were reduced readmissions in the 90% group. Resource analysis revealed a mean saving of $496 per patient in the 90% group. So, in summary, in healthy infants with acute viral bronchiolitis, a target oxygen saturation of 90% compared to 94% resulted in equivalent time to cough resolution and improved return to normal feeding, a parental perception of return to normal quicker, and improved time to ready to discharge with no adverse events or parental anxiety. These beneficial effects could be due to the reduced time in oxygen supplementation, creating the perception of normality and changing behaviour. However, in summary, this suggests the target of 90% in this cohort is safe and raises the possibility that a lower target could be safely achieved, a hypothesis that requires exploration and would have impacts in developing countries where oxygen is an expensive resource. Okay, let's look at the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, where we have hospitalization type and subsequent severe sepsis. 
this database linkage study introduces us to the concept of dysbiosis, disruption of the microbiome, and the effect this may have on subsequent sepsis. So dysbiosis has been identified in host inflammatory conditions and is implicated in many chronic diseases. And the gut microbiome has been shown to have an important role in the resistance to sepsis in animals and preterm infants. The authors have investigated the relationship between dysbiosis and subsequent sepsis by hypothesizing that three major hospitalization events would result in various degrees of dysbiosis. And these are hospitalization without infection, hospitalization with infection, and hospitalization with Clostridium difficile infection, CDI. They have conducted a Medicare database linkage from 1998 to 2010 to establish the relationship between these three exposures, so three types of hospital admission and outcome, risk of severe sepsis in the 90 days after discharge. And they adjusted for covariates, which were comorbidities, functional measures, race, and socioeconomic factors. They used a longitudinal design with between-person comparisons and a self-controlled case series design using within-person comparison. They identified 43,095 hospitalizations among 10,996 patients, which were divided up as about 28,500 non-infective, 14,000 infective, and 400 CDI. They report that hospitalizations with probable dysbiosis were associated with increased risk of subsequent severe sepsis, that is, the probability of 90-day readmission for severe sepsis was 3.7%, 8.4%, and 16.8%. After multivariate regression analysis to adjust for confounders, the probabilities were 4.1%, 7.1%, and 10%, a p-value of less than 0.007 for each pairwise comparison. The probability of readmission for non-sepsis did not differ with the three exposure categories, almost a control. There was a graduated increase in the rate of subsequent severe sepsis and the exposure category. So in summary, the rate of severe sepsis was more than threefold greater in the 90 days following all-cause hospitalization and is greater still in patients hospitalized with an infectious cause, with a dose relationship present with severity of dysbiosis and subsequent sepsis. The authors hypothesize that the initial dysbiosis mediates subsequent sepsis risk independent of other comorbidities, although the limitations, and that is no direct measure of the microbiome, no measurement of lingering immunomodulatory effects, make this a hypothesis-generating study. How do you investigate this further? Alter the microbiome in the exposure period and observe, observe the effect on subsequent sepsis while measuring dysbiosis and immune function? Who knows? Okay, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have palliative care for the seriously ill. And this is a review article that talks about what are the key concepts and recent developments and the evidence base in palliative care practice for the critically, seriously ill patient. So in terms of core components, they talk about physical and psychological symptoms. Pain is the most studied and publicized symptom. 
experienced in patients with common serious illnesses, but is only one of many. In addition, breathlessness, loss of energy, anorexia, nausea and vomiting, anxiety and depression, sleep disturbances, dry mouth are reported when formal assessment tools are used in palliative care patients. The second core component is spirituality. The majority of patients want to discuss spiritual concerns with their physicians, although this occurs in less than half of cases. Observational data suggests patients with unmet spiritual needs experience worse psychological quality of life and receive more burdensome non-beneficial interventions, although cancer patients who relied highly on religious coping were more likely to receive mechanical ventilation in an ICU. The third component is communication skills. A series of RTCs have assessed the application of consensus-based approaches to effective communication, breaking bad news, spikes, nurse, vital talk, etc. Patients with advanced cancer who had goals of care discussion with their physician were less likely than patients who did not to die in an ICU or receive mechanical ventilation and cardiopulmonary resuscitation and were more likely to be enrolled in hospice for longer than one week. Structured discussions about patients' wishes for end-of-life care in the ICU were associated with significantly increased overall family satisfaction with ICU care and decision-making. Hospital palliative care delivery is another area identified. Acute hospital palliative care is the most common setting for non-hospice palliative care delivery with interdisciplinary consultation team the most common model and or dedicated inpatient units. Multiple RCTs have shown reduced symptom distress, enhanced quality of life and a decreased spiritual distress in seriously ill patients referred to palliative care. They also identified expanding access to palliative care and barriers to delivery, evidence gaps and future directions. And finally, the last word, almost 90% of adults in the US have no or limited knowledge of palliative care, but after reading a definition, more than 90% would want it for them or their family. That's a huge treatment gap. Well, that's it for Critique, September 2015 Journal Club. Come to the website and have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. And that's going to be a big month because of the Berlin meeting and the papers attached to it. Thanks and goodbye.